Our next interview is with Professor Peter Newman of Curtin University, AO. Professor Newman has received numerous awards around the world for his eminent work on climate change and sustainability. He has trained more than 100 PhDs in this very important field. More recently, he has been named to the panel on climate change in Paris, studying this as a worldwide issue. He and I have been discussing the recent changes in climate here, particularly the fires in Australia, that are damaging the environment so much that Australia's deserts are expanding. We are in grave danger, both in the United States and Australia, and no one could tell the story better. Um, creating farmland, particularly for cows, and exporting that to the uh, to the world, and that certainly in Brazil, that's been allowed rather than stopped in recent times. So it, it is a big threat. It could change overnight with the political uh, interference that says this is not going to continue. Um, and poverty can be solved in other ways. That's, um, that's a lot harder in our forests in the Mediterranean areas. It, it's more like California and Portugal, uh, in, in Peru, uh, those, and in South Africa, where you've got genuinely new situations emerging quicker than we first expected, that the drying out is leading to massive fires. Incredible. So, uh, but we have cyclones in the United States, uh, snows in the middle of March, um, incredible transformations. As you know, we, you and I both were in New Orleans. That should have been a wake-up call. Uh, those kinds of flooding conditions haven't happened in New Orleans itself, but all around New Orleans. Does this mean the United States is headed in a direction that's almost irretrievable, not to mention the California fires. Well, the, for the world, it's irretrievable um, unless we change. And that change process, I should say, from within is, is happening a lot quicker than that report suggests. It's, that report is based on the kind of literature that's been coming out for some time and the, the fact that governments are supposed to be uh, turning this around. And in many ways, it is turning around and governments are following rather than leading in most parts of the world. Following whom? Who's the government following? They're, They're following, following the technology changes and the, and the financing changes that are associated with that. Um, the, the reality is that leadership is a bit, a bit thin uh, in the climate change area. Uh, the public health people showed us in COVID how really leadership could happen. Um, but, uh, you know, in our country and, and in America, the leadership on climate change has been rather sporadic, uh, not enough bipartisanship. In Europe, it's much more bipartisan, so it's easier to be a leader. But even there, 
the lobbies are very strong to maintain status quo. But the technology is happening so quickly of very cheap solar, very cheap batteries, and very cheap running of mobility because of that. Uh, so electromobility is rapidly becoming very cheap as well. And this is undermining all those other lobbies, the oil companies, the coal companies, even the gas companies who have controlled this and the automobile companies are, are changing very rapidly. And they're because, changing to save themselves? Yeah, they're changing to save themselves. And if the fossil fuel companies don't do that, they'll go dis extinct. They're the new dinosaurs um, and cities that don't change. Like Detroit didn't change. It, it, and it, it got almost abandoned. It was so uh, amazing, the decline in the economy. That, that Detroit factor, as it's now called around the world, is motivating a lot of people, a lot of companies who are local, don't want to see this happen to their city, or global, as in BlackRock and other big companies that have got a lot of money. And there's something like 53 trillion now committed to only being given to companies that can demonstrate net zero outcomes. That's a major change that um, should be seen as a, a game changer because the politics becomes that much easier if you've got companies like that saying, look, this is the future. The economy is on the way to become different and uh, it's going to be net zero. Well, why haven't we seen much more change on the political level? Uh, why would Trump uh, reduce the uh, law with respect to emissions. Uh, at the same time, Ford says their next generation of automobiles will be battery operated. Why aren't they responding to these signals in every way? Why should we fight coal? Coal's going out of business on its own. Well, I, I would say quite as a simple insight that um, they're not oriented to the market and it's new market, uh, they're oriented to an old one and they're only oriented to whoever is paying for them to say the right things uh, and, and get elected. Um, so they picked up, the Trump um, entourage picked up on, on a very clear uh, bottom-up uh, loss of jobs oriented uh, movement that swept across the country and was basically blaming the fact that these greenies and left-leaning people were trying to create a world that would um, make it even harder and harder for them. Um, so that's now thrown away, fortunately. Uh, we had people playing with it here. Fortunately, our Prime Minister that went that way, Tony Abbott only, only lasted nine months. And we have ways in our system of getting rid of people during their, their um, time in office because uh, the party can vote them out, which is what happened. Now he, he was getting more and more radical and crazy and opening up to extreme right-wing movements that, um, that Trump was doing as well. And you saw at the end how easily he would have 
uh, enabled the whole democratic system to collapse. I believe that was where we were headed in Australia as well. But fortunately, that didn't happen. Malcolm Turnbull took over and was a much more balanced and certainly pro-climate person. But even then, it's, it was very hard to see much change in what was committed to. But one thing did happen. They're saying they agreed to the Paris, uh, to entering Paris. Uh, the, the agreement there was to ratchet up the commitments over years and We've yet to do that in Australia, but we did agree to Paris uh, and uh, so did America and it took two years to get out of it, but they're straight back in. Um, so we're pretty similar. We aren't leading the world and certainly America isn't uh, anymore. It was when I first yeah. went to America in 1973 to Stanford uh, and uh, it, it was exactly what I, why I went to America. I wanted to see the leadership that was happening and, and I've been back time and again to teach at the University of Pennsylvania, to teach at the University of Virginia. I worked with resources for the future in Washington, DC. These were amazing American experiences for me. And I felt I was on the edge of innovation in this area for a lot, a lot of it. But after Reagan, in fact, I think America began to lose that edge mm -hmm. and it shifted to Europe, to Japan, to even to Canada and Australia, where we were at least allowing this innovation to proceed, whereas um, it, it was being run down to the extent that you couldn't even use the, use the word sustainable development. Or climate. It, was, it was a pretty sad time. Now, uh, the elephant in the room, China. Mm. We've both been to China and spent time there. They're putting in more solar devices, more windmills than anybody else. Are they going to be a leader in climate change? They certainly are a leader. We have um, been studying uh, Chinese cities. Uh, with a PhD that was able to get inside and get a lot of information. Um, and we showed that uh, Beijing and Shanghai have both gone through peak car. Peak car is a phenomenon we have been uh, following in our research group and in our writings, which are all American books. Uh, and you can look at it in the end of automobile dependence. Mm -hmm. um, how cities are moving beyond car-based planning. Well, China did that in Beijing and Shanghai with one of the first emerging economies to do this because they invested in uh, public transport rather than freeways. They stopped their freeway developments, which were going nowhere. Um, and very rapidly people switched to their new metros, which are beautiful, the intercity high-speed rail, uh, and that has now meant that car use is in decline in those cities. We had a similar uh, process happening in all American, European, Australian cities. It, it was beginning to set in as, as, as the car-based era was ending. Um, it's still hanging in there, um, but it was essentially because you just couldn't get another car into those cities. They they were well. Then COVID time. should be an advantage here. COVID COVID should 
be a restart. Haven't been coming to cities. Workers are working from home, uh, from neighborhood centers and the like. Is COVID an advantage for us now? Well, it certainly it did change the uh, perspective of the importance of local, um, and people discovered that there were a lot, a lot of things that could be improved in their local parks and local cycleways and local footpaths or sidewalks, as you call them in America. And that process will continue. Uh, working from home was uh, a breakthrough because the technology to do that's been around, but it was never really as effective as it now is. And we can do this kind of interview because we are able to have this new technology. It's ramped up. It's far better. And so the, the, the world is seeing about a one and a half day on average change for people to work at home who normally worked in central cities um, and, and went there because uh, of the face-to-face contact. And in my view, that's a good one because face-to-face contact is absolutely essential to plan projects and to get the kind of interaction that enables uh, creative knowledge economy jobs uh, to work properly. You can follow up, however, on your computer and you can even have lots of follow-up meetings because you've met and you know each other and you're able to proceed Uh, So we're going to have that combination in future. But the idea that cities will collapse and spread out and people will just totally interact on the internet uh, is nonsense. It will not happen. Um, It's way more important to have face-to-face contact in our cities now than it ever was because the knowledge economy is so big a part of how we need to create work for the future and all of that happens when we get together and it's a, that brings me to this notion of quality time we used to talk about quality time with our children now people are talking about quality time with their office so those meetings we used to sit in particularly academic meetings for hours and hours nothing being done a lot of that shuffling of paper can be done at home when you come to the meeting everyone prepared and you can select a new candidate or or get a proposal together in two hours rather than six. Yep. And it is quality time. And uh, I'm on the IPCC where we have meetings with four or 500 people, scientists from all around the world. Uh, We've had to have E meetings. Um, and the last one replaced a conference in Lima where we were all supposed to go. It would have taken me 36 hours to get there. So I was very pleased not to have to go and do that. Um, and the reviews afterwards showed that people felt it was better than if we'd been there because through the chat, you can actually interact far better with speakers and you can follow up. You can still do your, your personalised meetings, your, your, your threes, your thirties, um, even, but, but the plenary groups that are getting everyone together, uh, that worked and it worked well. So 
we are proceeding with our our project uh, and I believe that it has been benefited from having that process. Now, we knew each other before. Yes. If we'd been meeting for the first time, I'm not sure that it would have been as effective, but yeah. we knew each other. And All right, let's get into the prognostication here. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm pleased to announce I'm the CLEE lecturer this year for Australia from the Planning Institute. Uh, and that means I have to talk about what the future is. Uh, and there are three features here. One of them is we have the beginnings of what you might call a less car-based future. The other is, is there a possibility that we'll start doing things in our neighborhoods and our communities to make them more lively, better, higher quality places? And the third thing is the impact on families and education. How do you see those things working out? We're gonna have better neighborhoods and better downtowns and better family lives as a result of taking care of the environment? Well, it all depends. And that's always the case with prognostications. Um, you can put together uh, scenarios which show things getting worse. Mm -hmm. And certain companies are gonna do very well out of a change where what I call privatism is expanded. Mm -hmm. Privatism was really what ki is killing, has been killing the suburbs and cities that are totally car dependent. Yes. It's all about just feeding this desire to fade out into areas by yourself and with your family, uh, live a life that's largely self-sufficient socially. Um, and it doesn't work for a start and families uh, are dying because of that. Um, and increasingly in Australia, it's very obvious, the outer suburbs, which are the most car dependent, um, the new ones are dying because th that's where the violence is, that's where the, the poor are left and the services are very, are very weak. Um, and if you've got any money at all, you come back to the inner and middle suburbs and you live close to things and you get the beautiful parks and hospitals nearby and all of that. And I, I think- There's an interdependence between uh, we call inner ring suburbs and central city. Yeah, and the inner ring and the central city have gentrified very rapidly in Australian cities before Americans, but the American cities have done that now. And uh, you're beginning to see the uh, problems of the outer suburbs, which is where the, the uh, problem of the uh, global financial collapse um, that happened uh, uh, in uh, Obama's time, that, that was really caused by these very big um, mortgages on houses that were that couldn't be afforded and they were all packaged up in ways that were meant to to save them but they, they collapsed so that process is is going to be happening in any of our cities that entirely live around a privatism idea 
it's not good enough. You have to create cities as as beautiful places where people want to be and they are working in communities. Communities are the central function of cities. If you don't have that, if you have isolated people in isolated families, they will die. And that process has to drive the future as it has the past. We have to reclaim that and that will be important in the next era of solar, batteries, electric vehicles, all of that, the internet of place, as I call it, will need to be re reclaimed so that we have communities that are driving the, the uh, future cities. And these communities will be just as powerful as Jane Jacobs found in, in, in Greenwich Village and, and was able to stop the freeway going through the middle of that. That would have been the wrong use of technology. And we need to shape technology to make it beneficial for people in community. And that should drive, if that drive things, we will have um, solved climate change, but at the same time, we will have had uh, created cities that are much more beneficial to families and, uh, and, and overcoming poverty. Well, our cities now, uh, the inner ring suburbs are way too expensive. Uh, does that mean we have to have a different kind of housing program or policy or the like uh, to accommodate this new style of living? Because the outer suburbs are now becoming the most, more desperate. The inner ring are becoming very expensive. And when you get to the central city, if you're not living in a skyscraper, you can't live there. Yeah, we have a new book that's coming out shortly from Routledge called Greening the Grey Fields. And it's essentially about the middle suburbs, which are those suburbs that were built post-war around cars, uh, but the inner city in, in a effect, which was not built around cars, has regenerated very rapidly because of that fabric, which is so much more community oriented with very good public transport. Um, and America's got all of that um, the middle suburbs are the next priority. And here you have lots of separate blocks, but they're all dying because the houses are, uh, are no longer uh, working. The people are moving out, uh, moving either into the inner areas because they can afford to live in an apartment um, and have access to all the good things of life or they're going to the outer suburbs because they can't afford to live there any longer um, and don't have the kind of superannuation and so on that would enable them to live a, a good retirement. And that process is dividing our city. So we, we need to see how we can do greening the greyfields. It requires us to do a different approach to precincts instead of subdividing a block and putting three little units behind it, which is what we've been doing and they're hopeless because you just get more cars and, and uh, not many people and uh, no improvement to the services or the infrastructure, not much better community. Um, and so we need to be able to get a hundred blocks together into a precinct or a whole block or a whole neighborhood that can be worked together with the community in, 
in going through a transition where they get housing that is suit of their needs, but a whole lot more housing is provided that's affordable as well as unaffordable, as in providing for the wealthy. Um, and as part of it, you get something like the new trackless tram, which is a new light rail service that would reach into those areas and provide with them with the kind of services that are in the inner suburbs. Now, I think that's where we need to start because the outer suburbs are all new houses. Uh, they're not ready for redevelopment. The inner suburbs are looking after themselves in terms of the market forces, and they've gone way beyond most affordable uh, solutions. So the affordability, I think, needs to focus on the middle suburbs, and we should be able to find ways to green them with the community in ways that will be zero carbon and will be highly affordable and beautiful for the yeah. next generation. As you know, I agree with that. And you and I have been preaching this notion, this notion of precinct planning. Our current planning system here in Australia and much of America is one building at a time. Mm. Rather than planning an entire area and community so the naysayer says, I don't want this next door to me, but the entire community has to change, not just one house, not one new, new apartment, but the entire neighborhood's gonna be changed in its character. And somehow our planning system is this one at a time, a one developer at a time approach, which can't work to deliver what you're talking about. No, it's right. And um, th there's a developer here uh, who's Italian, and he said, look, you can get three blocks at a time uh, if they're Italian or five if they're not, <laughs> but no more than that no can more you ever manage to bring together. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a joke, but a, a sad one because the reality is getting 100 blocks together is impossible by a developer. The developer needs help. And it needs local government, it needs the creativity and the finance of the developer, but it needs local leadership, it needs communities that say this is what we want, and it is certainly state government agencies that can facilitate it. The planning agencies have got to focus on land assembly for that kind of precinct scale development. If they don't have the powers to do that, and they don't have a process that can enable the local community to go this way and say that's what they want so they can remain in the area that's they'll right. have a lot more neighbors they'll have a lot more services and the value of their properties will continue to rise they'll be able to sell it to their kids uh, or give it to their kids that all of that can happen if you get the right planning process and that planning process has been uh, stuck in the modernist approach to privatism with one block at a time, just developing it further and further out. Uh, the developers, by the way, in the outer suburbs did it with large blocks. They had yes, the ability to buy up huge tracts of land, land and do it that way. And in the inner suburbs, many times developments have been on brownfield sites, old industrial sites that have been developed large scale. But the ability to do land assembly in middle suburbs around precincts 
you and I know that's the way of the future. That's the way of the future. And we're able to do that in New Orleans because it fell down. Yeah, that's right. And that's the other thing you can say about COVID. It, it is falling down a, a lot of those structures and opening up opportunities to say, we can now do this differently. And uh, I'm, I'm welcoming that opportunity. It's coming in all kinds of new ways, uh, mainly at local levels still, but um, certainly governments uh, are, are saying, all right, let's, let's try and do this differently. Yeah. So one thing we can do differently is spend more time talking about what's so close to our hearts. Uh, but I think you stimulated a lot of listeners on both sides of the Pacific help us plan better, safer, smarter, greener, more sustainable, and climate change interdependent rather than slavishly trying to fight the climate after the disaster. Yeah, well, vote one Blakely and I'll be your vice president. <laughs> With that, thank you much, very much, Peter. And we got to keep working at it. Yep, and uh, America's got to got to get its leadership back in all kinds of ways. And I'm hopeful that that's now going to happen. It was a sad, dark time there for four years, and uh, I, I, I really do consider that America can get its mojo back. But you've got a lot of catching up to do. Really, well, we all do. That. Yeah, we all do. Australia is not far ahead, but it's clearly we're doing a lot more in our cities and a lot more in innovation and climate change, actually, than I found in America. So it is, but there's lots of other things going on that we can share as we always have in the past. We need to share this future. And um, for me, it's, uh, it, it's one that must involve America and Australia in partnership. So thanks for having this uh, this little opportunity to talk uh, to America and Australia at the same time. I, I think it's fantastic. I, I hope this works. And when it comes out, tell all your friends. I will. Thank you, mate. Bye. Yeah. Pacific Conversations is brought to you by Ed Blakely and myself, Sean Britton. Make sure to subscribe wherever you find the podcast so you don't miss out on our next conversation. For weekly U.S. news and current affairs, check out Ed and I's other podcast, U.S. of Ed. And for more information, go to the website, edtalks.com.au.